Well, welcome. This is episode 57 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack. Hugh Rimmington here, the National Affairs Editor at Network 10. The Political Affairs Editor or Political Editor is The Professor, Peter Van Onselen, so much brighter than me. Um, we are grateful to have you with us here again, uh, PVO. Um, G'day, Hugh. I've got to tell you, I'm, 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 uh, I need to get the juices flowing in my brain because uh, I've got these neighbours working on their pool, as you well know, jackhammer uh, continuing. It's a, it's a daily grind uh, here in the neighbourhood, but they're only allowed to work between whatever hours it is during the day. But then all of a sudden, almost on cue, designed to frustrate local residents uh, with last night at 3am, massive machinery right in front of my house was getting dropped off for a, actual roadworks that are starting up now today in this neighbourhood. I don't mind them upgrading the roads. I don't mind them using it as stimulus to ensure people have jobs. I'm surprised that they're allowed to drop all this heavy equipment off in the middle of the night. The first round was at 11 p.m. The next round was at 3 a.m. Takes them about an hour to get it all Professor Van Onselen, let, let me advise you on this. What, what this requires is a sternly written letter to your local MP. That'll have the effect. <laughs> well, my, 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 my wife has already written a sternly worded email to the local council. Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll see where that goes. I I don't know that we'll update listeners. I'm not sure they're that interested in it. But I tell you Demo- what, I will democracy not let this in go. action. Democracy in action. <laughs> now um, these, some might argue, uh, are somewhat first world issues beyond the point that you make there that it may be part of a stimulation a stimulus package to you know to keep people in work. We are in recession. It's sobering. Uh, mm. We. We know that it's effectively confirmed by the treasurer, even if the numbers haven't come in to confirm it as yet, because we had the latest quarter was in negative for 0.3%. Uh, it was a 0.03%. You, you advised a 0.3% on GDP. And the, um, uh, but the, the, the quarter that we're currently in, it is acknowledged, will be far worse, which would then give us two quarters of, uh, of negative growth. And uh, that is by the traditional definition, a recession, the first in 29 years. Uh, Before we get into what the government might do about it, pause and reflect, if you would, for us, uh, PVO. Uh, What what does this mean? I mean, whole generations of people have got no idea, or certainly a full generation of people have got no idea what it might be to, to be in recession. Well, look, that's right. I mean, the last one was in 1991. Uh, and of course, the after effects of a recession are probably as, if not more important than the direct effects at the time. Uh, so it's the years ahead from now, what we go through that will be the really difficult time for rising unemployment, at least for the foreseeable future, difficulty of finding jobs, uh, you know, all sorts of issues within the economy. But yeah, 29 years ago, Paul Keating was a treasurer at the time. Uh, and it was the recession, he said, that we had to have. And this is the recession that we couldn't seem to avoid because it's a global recession, certainly in the wake of the coronavirus. But we already had some issues in the budget, I have to say, because of not, not a recession, I wouldn't say, but certainly issues affecting the capacity to hit the budget surplus because of the bushfires based on some of these numbers. But it's going to get much worse in that second quarter. As you say, Hugh, the Treasurer made clear Uh, that the second quarter will be negative. So therefore, we can say it's a technical recession, two quarters of negative economic growth, but it's going to be a much bigger negative second quarter than it was first quarter at minus 0.3. And that's because the more profound impact that we're right in the midst of now of the coronavirus will be more substantially felt in that second quarter. What does it mean? 
I'm part of what you talk about. I'm, I've read a lot about the 1991 recession, but at the time I was in year 10, so I wasn't in the workforce yet. Uh, so yes, early on when I was still at university uh, and just doing casual and part-time jobs to be able to uh, have a bit of money while doing education, I noticed and felt the difficult aftermath in terms of finding the jobs uh, just in that casual sense while studying. But I haven't been through it before as a fully-fledged adult, as a full-time worker uh, with the responsibilities of a mortgage and children, dependents and all the rest of it. So this is as new for me as a 44-year-old as it therefore would be for so many working Australians. Uh, And, yeah, look, I'm sure it's scary for people who still have their jobs much less for people who have already been profoundly impacted and either are underemployed or, or are indeed un, unemployed or relying on the JobKeeper to even have a job at the moment. Yeah, so my experience having known recessions, uh, being that much older and being in my working life, I, 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 I began my working life into a recession in the early 1980s. I certainly have a recollection of the early 1990s when interest rates was different. Actually, interest rates shot up mm. at that stage. And that helped to induce the the recession. That went up to seventeen percent plus on your housing mortgage, um, which uh, you know it's hard to hard really to comprehend that that percentage of of what you've borrowed in your house you have to repay back every year. But um, so for me, the experience is one of anxiety over work more than anything. It's over your job, and this goes back to the Great Depression. If you could stay off those unemployment lines you felt as if you could somehow come through those times. Although it's very damaging to the social fabric because there is such a huge division between the haves and the have-nots. Mm. And, uh, and that is a wounding thing. It's a lifelong kind of scar that it leaves on people who've, who've come through those uh, experiences. So jobs are going to be the key thing. We're told that unemployment is going to uh, go up uh, significantly from where it is at the moment, uh, probably into double digits. Uh, those are the forecasts uh, from the uh, the best brains that the country um, has officially at its disposal at the Treasury, at the RBA. Uh, so unemployment is the key. Job anxiety is the key because you can survive as long as there's a paycheck. And if there's not a paycheck, you really start to get that uh, uh, that look in your eye. Now, the government has announced a step to try to shore up at least some employment in the construction industry with the announcement of this $25,000 uh, uh, cash. Can I offer a, a view on that, if you don't mind? I mean, I, sorry, you were just in the middle yeah, of outlining yeah, yeah, ex- it. Explain, explain it and then say what you think of it. Yeah, so $25,000 cash grants for people building new homes or renovating existing homes. Now, I think you have to earn under $125,000 as an individual or $200,000 as a couple to be eligible. And I think you need to spend over $150,000 to be able to get it uh, in the first place. I think this is an announceable rather than a genuine policy. Just under $700 million being announced to help stimulate renovations and building of new homes sounds great, right? Nice marketing, nice PR get big headlines like they've got today, get people like us talking about it, the network's talking about it, packages in the nightly news, you name it. Fast forward 12 or 24 months, how many people earning less than $125,000 in the middle of a recession with the volatility we have are going to be spending over 150 grand after tax on a renovation that they weren't already committed to on their home? I mean, 
it strikes me as passing absurd that anyone would decide, you know what, there's an extra 25K in this. Let's do it where we weren't otherwise going to. I think it's a crock and I predict, and I'm happy to have this played much to my shame if I'm wrong. I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it. Uh, I'm happy to predict that when the real numbers come in, the package won't have been spent to the tune of $688 million. It'll barely be spent a quarter of that, probably less in my estimates, but it's allowed them a nice big fat announceable today. And then tomorrow, fast forward however long, when the budget comes in, they'll be able to say, guess what? The hit to the budget hasn't been as bad as we thought. Aren't we grand economic managers? Uh, it's having your cake, Hugh, and eating it. I'm not yeah, buying so, it. So you, okay, that's fine. And one of the things which strikes me, so the point to it is, as you argue, a short-term positive, um, yes, we're in recession, but we've got a plan type of headline. But what yep. strikes me is how it hasn't gone down all that well. The initial reactions have been... Uh, have been quite savage in some ways. And just a few of them that have, that have come. One is, as my wife points out, that most of the jobs that have disappeared have been women. And mm. in jobs in areas of the, of the economy where women uh, dominate um, and, uh, and casual staff dominate. Much and, fewer uh, women in construction. Good point. Right, yeah, fewer women in construction. Uh, other lots of people have been on on various different forums on on sort of uh, you know comment sections of newspapers. Never read the comments. Never mind. Um, and on talkback, uh, my apologies for my phone just disappearing on there. But they're, they're, they're sort <laughs> that's of saying, Scott Morrison getting a live feed of this, and he's unhappy yeah, absolutely, and he's going nuts. Um, but then you're also getting people saying, well, hang on down my street. I saw the tradies. They kept working. I wasn't working or I was working from home, but the tradies were still rolling up and working. They were encouraged to turn up to work. Uh, so they're, they're fine. Uh, another point being is that if you've put in, or if you're a builder contractor and you're going to do a reno for a place and you've t- tallied up the sums and you think, well, the proper amount to charge for this is, you know, to quote for this is $130,000, $140,000. Well, you're not going to go with that. You're going to make it because you're not because the person the con, who's contracting is not going to get the 25 grand. Immediately, what you're going to do is to inflate the price of the job uh, to make sure that it meets the threshold of 150, so that the person can then claim the money. So it has it has a sort of a nonsensical extra element like that. But mm. um, a point that was made by Adam Crichton, who writes economics for the Australian, is uh, that um, I'm, I'm just going to pull the thing up here: forcing taxpayers to renovate other people's homes, to aid some <laughs> trading. Yeah, stick with me. Forcing taxpayers to renovate other people's homes to aid some trading who probably earns more than the average taxpayer is economic and political stupidity, so says Adam Crichton in The Australian. And he's got a point. He does. That he ultimately, does. the money for this comes from other taxpayers to go and support the jobs of substantially tradies who probably earn more than they do. Yeah, but Hugh, 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 Adam Crichton didn't used to work for the property council. You know who did? Who did? Scott Morrison. Yeah. It it does seem, this is the point. I would have thought the property council would like it, wouldn't they? But but here's another point. The property council might like or might not like, certainly the construction industry might have liked what other people say is where the real need for housing is, so it's argued, is in social housing. People who can't afford mm. housing, uh, pensioners who, are, who, who cannot afford their rent on their pension, other kinds of things, social housing. 
and that you can stimulate the yeah, but jobs, Hugh, again, I, you are so there naive. There are no votes Hugh, in exactly. Housing. You're so – I was worried you were getting naive. There are no votes in social housing. Who do you think earns under 125000 as an individual or under 200000 as a couple who would be incredibly grateful for this $25,000, the few who might use it or the many who think it's a great idea because they could use it but don't, which is why I think it's an announceable. Who? The Morrison Battlers, Hugh. They're the ones, the ones that are going to be very important at the next election. Not that I'm cynical or anything. But this is, but this, let's not be cynical. Let's be quite clear eyed about this that there has been a process of, uh, if you look at the people who've been identified as being needing, perhaps we've had this flag, an extension of JobKeeper, a further tapering of JobKeeper. Uh, so there's on one argument, there's a view that JobKeeper has worked well enough and that when it comes up for review, it'll be wound back at some level. But the two areas where there are exceptions being made are the tourism industry, a lot of regional Queensland, lots of important seats in Queensland, and in uh, the construction area, which are outer suburban seats, the tradies living in those kinds of ring, ring suburbs, who are people who may change their votes. You only do something if it's going to change or secure a vote that might otherwise drift away. That was the whole essence of sports rorts. It wasn't that the money went exclusively into coalition seats. In fact, if you had a completely safe coalition seat, you're unlikely to get it. What mattered was if a vote was going to shift, could you make sure it shifted to you or that it didn't shift away from you? And so this is, you know, not, not, let's not be too gimlet-eyed in our cynicism, but this seems to be a furtherance of that practice that we've seen from uh, Scott Morrison, the marketing man. You only put money where there are votes, and that is not actually how you secure an economy in a tough time. You're making me nostalgic, Hugh, the, the good old days when sports rorts only saw uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, getting pork barreled rather than billions. Uh, th them were the days pre-coronavirus. We've got much more to talk about because uh, the United States is in a cool, uh, is, is it well, in a cool place? Is not what I'm saying, really. There is a chill across the United States, even as the flames burn. We want to talk about that. There's some interesting stuff going on in the High Court. There's some other stuff to talk about. We're going to take a quick break back in a minute. 10 Speaks' latest podcast, 10 News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country. Stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Rolda Jacobs, and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. We're, uh, we're looking at uh, uh, a whole bunch of things. So for episode uh, 57, we've had our go at the recession. But look, uh, what has been across our TV screens for the past week has been uh, the violence in the United States in particular, but it's spreading around the world. Uh, after the, the death, the alleged uh, murder of uh, George Floyd, the black man by a police officer. And it has been really the reaction of Donald Trump, uh, but also the reaction of protesters, but also looters that have driven this. There now mm. seems to be a split between Donald Trump and his defense secretary. Donald Trump has made the remarkable statement that he has considered invoking the Insurrection Act, a 213-year-old act to override states and uh, essentially use the U.S. military internally uh, in, in this crisis, to resolve this crisis. Quite extraordinary suggestion, which the Defense Secretary 
has indicated uh, that he wants no part of. So we're only six months from a US presidential election, less. And yet we have these remarkable scenes with a, you know, talk me through your view about what this is, it says about the United States and how it's being run. Well, firstly, in Trump's mind, you know, the defense secretary disagreeing with him is neither here nor there. He just gets him to move on. He's done it so many times before with people in prominent positions. He just brings in another person. He's done it around secretary of state. He's done it around AG, national security advisors, you name it. So from Trump's perspective, a Trump presidency isn't about him and his executive. It's all about him. Uh, and perhaps one of the only reasons Mike Pence doesn't suffer that fate is because he either toes the line or it's a more difficult bar for him to jump. So uh, that I don't say that's right, but I, I think that's the unfortunate reality. And, and also the evidence seems to be that Americans, to some extent, uh, have been so normalised to the idea that members of the executive come and go uh, around disagreements with the yeah, president. One thing, one thing it should be said, yeah, one thing that has to be said about the vice president is the vice president, like the president, is actually elected. Exactly. Uh, so they're much harder to get rid of. But um, yep. look, I think what's interesting in this is that the Trump calculation is, and, and it's interesting to see how the story is being told. So as with so much in the United States, there are two ways in which this is being told. One is that there are protests against the historic injustices done against African-Americans and the likelihood that they're, they're going to suffer an injustice at the hands of law enforcement officials and that these protests are being uh, uh, subjected to uh, 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 violence and overreach, uh, that, that reporters reporting it, uh, part of the uh, protected, we talked about it before, the constitutionally protected roles of, of a free press to report it. They've also been thumped and bashed, including some Australian crews that have been over there um, reporting well, can on I, all can, of this. Can, can, so, can hang, I hang, yeah, sorry, sorry, but that, So that's one side, because the other side of the argument is, is on conservative TV. What you see on Loop is not really that. What you see is people looting, and, and mm. overwhelmingly African-Americans looting stores. And that is the side that, uh, that Donald Trump is appealing to, that only he, with Bible in hand, uh, can protect the American people, to which he coded the white American people, from uh, essentially black people running amok and destroying stores and, and having violence in our streets. Those are the two, it seems, poles to the presentation of what's taking place in the United States at the moment. Yeah, and we, and we saw the, those scenes in Washington, D.C., you know, where people, including that Channel 7 crew, which I want to talk about in a moment, were, were pushed aside uh, in, in quite a violent way, not just in any other way, uh, to get Donald Trump to that church to be able to hold that Bible up upside down and backwards, which he didn't seem to notice, uh, and, and get a photo opportunity, which very quickly turned into a campaign ad uh, that was put out pretty quickly afterwards. So all pretty unimpressive. Apparently his AG was the one who facilitated this. Uh, we don't know too much about what else went on behind the scenes. But what I want to get your view on is something that actually brings this crisis closer to home. Our Prime Minister spoke to Donald Trump on the same day uh, that that Channel 7 crew was um, hit with batons and shields and had rubber bullets and tear gas fired at them. Uh, and you know we're, we're not you know, we're pretty shaken by it as anyone would be. Uh, now that occurred uh, at eight thirty a.m. and went out live on Channel Seven for Sunrise. Ninety minutes later, 
uh, our prime minister spoke to Donald Trump, you know, about whether he wanted to turn up and rock up at the G7 meeting, uh, amongst perhaps some other things. The prime minister's office made clear that the prime minister didn't know about what happened to the Channel 7 crew before he spoke to Donald Trump. So therefore, by definition, didn't have an opportunity to raise it. What I, my question for you, Hugh, is this. One, do you believe that the Prime Minister wouldn't have known about something that went out on live TV on a program like Sunrise 90 minutes earlier? And two, even if you do believe that, do you believe no one in the Prime Minister's office, the most well-resourced media office in the entire parliamentary process, was aware of what had happened 90 minutes earlier on live television on the top rating show to then also get distributed on social media and picked up by every other media outlet as well. Do you believe that no one in his office was aware or do you believe that somebody was aware, but they either chose deliberately to keep the PM in the dark for his own benefit, or they just didn't think it was important enough to pass on. And even if you get past all of that, is it the kind of thing he perhaps should raise or is that the inappropriate forum to do so? Well, a few things going up the line there. Sunrise will be monitored by some junior apparatchik in the media thing. Uh, They would have been aware of it at some level. It probably would have escalated a little bit up the line. Um, Would it have got as far as being perceived to be a matter for the prime minister to raise? Therefore, he needs to be informed uh, before his conversation with Trump. Bear in mind that every Australian prime minister who's had to deal with Trump uh, has going back to you know Turnbull and the, the famous mm. first phone call and all the rest of it knows that they have to deal with a highly it's, it's like carrying nitroglycerine across a you know <laughs> across a, an abyss you have to deal with them with great care and and, and, and can I say I understand I'll be very quick I understand that so I understand if a decision was made by the prime minister not to raise it I also understand if a decision was made by a staff and not to tell him because it's better it's it's not relevant and he shouldn't raise it. What I'm really curious about is if a staffer decided not to tell him for plausible deniability reasons, because they did include in their unsolicited release to journalists that he was not aware at the time of his call. Now, that implies that, you know, there was just a missing link. If he was deliberately not aware because of a deliberate decision by a senior staffer not to tell him, then I think that becomes a disingenuous message for them to put out to all of us as journalists to just simply say, oh, he was unaware. They chose it to prob- it, it, prob- it probably is disingenuous. It probably is, mm. you know, because it, that, that it goes back to, say, children overboard. We're, we're part of the thing there with Howard was um, do people, when it was when it was found clear that, uh, that refugees, asylum seekers, um, had not thrown their children uh, in into the water as a means to apply pressure to the naval uh, crews who'd rolled up their to stand off them um that that in fact hadn't taken place the image that uh, you know that howard was able to say during an election campaign we don't want people here are the kind of people who'll throw their children into the water um and none of that happened and so when people knew that it hadn't happened and they knew quite quickly because it came up the naval chain of command uh that there was it later emerged a decision really to give deniability uh, so that the both the uh, the relevant minister, I think it was Alexander Downer at the time, but um, uh, but John Howard, the ability to say, well, you know, I'm only going on what I've been told. So that sort of process of giving a, a, a leader or a minister of deniability about what they've been told, I, I know nothing about that, is a great out from being actually held to account for something. But at the same time, taking the bigger picture, um, I don't think it's necessarily a point 
for an Australian prime minister to raise. There are all kinds of things happening in the United States that are domestic matters within the United States, including multiple instances of American reporters being hit with projectiles by police, having declared and identified themselves as journalists, of journalists being arrested and all the rest of it. Um, you know, it probably isn't relevant and probably wouldn't help the Australian interest for Scott Morrison to raise it in a kind of a, gee, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to talk to you about the concerns I have about how, you know, an Australian citizen working there as a journalist was treated. Um, these are matters that could probably be dealt with at an ambassador, ambassadorial level, at a diplomatic level, but probably mm. are not essential to that conversation. And so I, I would... But, but, what, but what about um, the decision not to tell him? See, well, I, we don't I, know. I, We're speculating about it. I mean, he says well, he well, wasn't told, and I'm presuming, uh, I'm presuming, and I take, I take your chain I, of I events take it, it, that it's I likely take that he's... Word. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think he was told, but I, I, there's only really two options, I think, as far as the office goes. Either the office was so incompetent that it was unaware of something that happened at 8.30 on live television on a top-rating program, uh, and it didn't know anything about that between then but that's and not that's not going to be the case they're, they're going to know no, about it. no okay in other words if they did know then there's the second option is that there's a breakdown in processes where someone junior knew but didn't get to anyone senior to make a call on whether they should or shouldn't tell scott morrison but i think the most likely option is the third one which is that they were aware of it and they made a decision not to tell him now i firmly am of the view that if that's the course that would be done so that they can then release the statement that they did issue, which was that the prime minister was unaware when having his conversation with the president. I don't disagree with you that it's probably not appropriate for him to raise it, but then have the guts to tell the prime minister because it's the right thing to do to tell him you've got 90 minutes, but then own the fact that you don't think it's appropriate for him to raise it with the US president. I can actually yeah. live with that. It's a bit beltway to my mind. It, it, you know, essentially, if you're talking to the president of the United States, you've got the G7 issues, which are, uh, uh, were relevant to the phone call, you know, Australia being essentially hugged a little closer into the, into the top global decision-making bodies. But, um, so, but then you've got, let's face it, you've got a pandemic, you've got a, a, a global recession. Um, there are plainly matters of, of concern and on the mind of Donald Trump about his internal uh, just security within the United States at the moment, that the, the civil unrest within the United States is a dominating effect. So uh, my feeling on it is that, uh, is that you know, it, it, it is sub-threshold. If I was the prime minister trying to have a talk to Trump at a time like this, it would not, that would not be a matter that I would seek to raise because it's, well, you know, what's Trump going to do with it? He's not going to say, oh, hell yes, I better prioritise that over, over these other things. He's not going yeah, to. That, 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 that's true. But uh, look, I, I've got a little bit, I'm a little bit more concerned. I mean, I, I don't disagree with the decision, perhaps not to, to raise it with him, but I, I am concerned about where all of this goes with the treatment of the media, because I do think that the way that Donald Trump demonises the media and treats it, um, and, and I think cuts the legs of the fourth estate as a pillar out from under it, has profound impacts uh, on the body politic and, and on our democracy. I mean, he describes journalists as, quote, unquote, truly bad people with a, quote, unquote, sick agenda. And he claims enemies the media, of the people. Enemies yep, of the and people. And he says the, the media is, quote, doing everything within their power to foment hatred and anarchy. And I think when you're somebody who gets described as a man of titanium, uh, like Scott Morrison has been, he's in a unique position to be able to point out to Donald Trump the real concerns uh, of turning the people against the media, given the role of the media in a democracy. Uh, Trump probably wouldn't listen. 
uh, ultimately on balance, maybe Scott Morrison doesn't have the time to tell him even if you thought it worth doing. Um, but I'm, I'm a bit, like I am concerned about this because we're in close to uncharted territory when it comes to a, a nation like the United States having a prime minister with such scant disregard uh, for one of the pillars of democracy. Well, I mean, if you're going to take up Trump on the issue of, uh, of, of journalistic freedoms and, and, you sh- and, and it's certainly legitimate to do so and to, just to express concerns for fundamental bedrock principles of the United States, then where do you stop? Um, there That's are a whole true. bunch of breakdowns in that area. Very quickly, domestically, as a kind of final observation, hasn't the High Court been busy? We've seen in the last couple of weeks, they overturned the robo-debt decision. Uh, the government processes uh, we discussed earlier uh, found to be totally unlawful, hundreds of millions of dollars to be given back to to people who were caught up in an unlawful process. The High Court then rolled on and uh, found that Labor had acted capriciously and against the law when they shut down the live cattle export trade in 2011. Uh, I got the feeling the Ag Minister Joe Ludwig at the time was being essentially press ganged into that by other members in cabinet. But nevertheless, the High Court active there again, the High Court active again, finding that the use of tear gas at the uh, Dondale Correctional Centre in the Northern Territory was against the law, against teenagers, most of them Aboriginal youth, uh, a decision which comes down at a time when uh, the the use of police and other uh, enforcement agencies against Aboriginal people here finds its own echo in what's going on in the United States. The High Court uh, is just giving a little reminder to everyone out there that uh, the courts do matter and uh, politicians need to make sure that their noses are clean and their intentions are pure uh, when they bring in legislation or acts, um, you know, at times of in, in particularly live cattle uh, when they're acting you know, in, in short order and, and being reactive, uh, the law can kick him along a little. Yep, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, it shows the importance of that separation of powers between the courts and the parliament, even if we don't have the same separation of powers between the parliament and the executive that we once had or that we should in theory have or that they indeed have in the United States, for example. Uh, but what's going to be interesting to me about this is also how the government reacts to some of these high court decisions, including some beyond what we've just talked about uh, when it comes to new appointments. I think there's two appointments due during the life cycle of this term of government. Uh, And I know that there's a lot of pressure within sections of the government for them to be real black letter law appointments rather than more judicial activist type personalities. Jamie Edelman is on the high court. He was appointed by George Brandis, you know, a, a liberal attorney general. And I think Jamie Edelman, disclaimer, I've known him since university days, I think that he's a wonderful appointment because I think he actually balances the two quite neatly. Um, but not everyone in the government agrees with that and, and they, they want a lesson learned when you talk to them behind the scenes uh, for a less judicially activist member of the High Court, um, particularly considering that someone like Jamie Edelman is as young as he is in his 40s. He will be there for a long time to come, which I think is a good thing, but not all the reactionaries within the government who think it is a good thing as well. Very hard to satisfy the reactionaries within the government. It's often a very good <laughs> idea not to try. Uh, let's hope we don't have the kind of partisanship over these appointments that we see in the United States where it becomes quite debilitating to, very uh, true. Uh, to the nation. Uh, Peter Van Onselen, <laughs> great to talk to you as always. We say goodbye and as I can hear machinery working its way past my house. Hugh, so I'll Drilling through your head. All the best. <laughs> Take care and have a great day out there. You too.
You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hi, everyone. This is Ange Bishop letting you know that if you're stuck in lockdown and looking for something to do after you've watched Studio 10, of course, have a listen to some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Ramsey Beat takes a look behind the scenes of iconic TV show Neighbours as it celebrates its 35th anniversary. There's the Husey We Have a Problem podcast, which is the best bits from the fantastic TV show. And our Reality Bite podcasts, Cocktails and Roses and Jungle Nights, for when you're feeling like a reality TV deep dive. While you're at it, give the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast a go. Find them all on the 10 Speaks page on 10Play or wherever you get your podcasts.